In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Peter, now chapter 4. St. Peter delves into the extraordinary journey of the early Christians as they face relentless trials and persecution. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he weaves their suffering into the narrative of Jesus and reminds us all that through our own trials and troubles, we are connected to the suffering of Christ. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, September 11th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. But we have a lot to cover today in this great text that points us to the sufferings of Christ as we face our own trials. And to help us through this text, I'm pleased to welcome back to the program the Reverend Timothy Sandino, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Good morning, pastor, and welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. It's good to be with now, you. Now, correct correct me if I'm wrong. Is it Sandino or Sandino? Sandino. Okay, pardon me for that then. Yeah. So, uh, Pastor Sandino, uh, you know, it's great to have you back on the program. Uh, last time we were together, it was, oh, it's been a few months now, but now we're in the New Testament, and we have been covering, well, we went through Acts, and now we're into Peter. And it seems like these epistles, uh, sometimes it can be really easy to go through, and I only mean easy in the sense that they're very practical. They, they speak to Christian life. They, they basically tell us what to do and what not to do. That's, that's a far cry different than some of the esoteric scriptures that we find in the Old Testament, like among the prophets and such. Well, I guess it's, it's, so it's not a historical book in that sense where you could just follow a chronology and see what's going on. Um, but I think there's a lot of depth to this, even though there's a practical aspect as Peter writes and instructs the church or churches. Um, he does base everything upon the theology um, that he was taught from Jesus, the theology that he learned from the, the scriptures himself. So um, while they're oh, practical sure. I, in I many guess, ways. I guess what I was thinking of, though, is it, it, as, as a course deep and as inspired as the words are, um, written as letters, they're 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 supposed to be pretty, I guess, straightforward. Uh, you know, it's it. The, I think the reason why we have to investigate a little more is because we're so far removed from, I guess, the time period in which they were written. So we have to make sure we understand the the teaching and the theology and the and the context. Uh, but I, I just I just know that when I preach, if I ever preach on the epistle, it always seems to just flow a little easier. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, they can be in some ways more personal in that respect, um, even though this is considered a general letter or one of the Catholic uh, epistles. Um, right. it, it is written specifically to congregations and not just recorded for uh, an open audience in that respect. Sure. Well, I'll tell you what, we can get into it and we'll, we'll see, we'll see uh, how that pans out by the end of the program. But I would like for you to start our time together in prayer, if you would, please, brother. Yes, yeah, so let's do that. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this day. Uh, here where you meet us in your word, full of grace and truth, we pray that you would settle us in this word, that our hearts uh, may be directed to you this day, especially as uh, we remember one of the darkest days in of our history uh, today. 
And we pray that uh, as we have attempted to heal as a nation, that we might see our true healing in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, First Peter is a very short letter so far as books go. Um, we're only in the fourth chapter here, so we haven't covered a lot of ground, and we actually don't have a lot of ground more to cover before we finish the letter. But as you said, it's, it's deep in the sense that we could probably talk about it for a very long time. Um, our, our subject today is chapter four, but it might be a good idea to catch people up. Um, what has been covered so far? Well, so, yeah, Peter writes to these churches in Asia, Asia Minor, and, um, and he reminds them a little bit of uh, who they are. Um, he, he reminds them of their election in Christ and, and then the implications of what that is. Um, you know, what it means to be a disciple, uh, how they are to live together in harmony. And, and I think for us in particular, as we get to the end of chapter 3, he comes particularly to baptismal identity because it, it becomes a, a key uh, impetus at the beginning of chapter 4 here of what it means to be in Christ and a part of the body of Christ. Well, why don't we go ahead and just, I guess, read the first few verses here. So it says in chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Stopping there at the end of verse 6, I think even in these first six verses, there's a ton that needs to be unpacked. Um, and, I, and I think it's worth just sort of, you know, starting at the beginning, because it says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, um, it's probably a good idea for us to see that this is an argument that's continuing. What What's the framing of his argument? What's he trying to say here? Yeah, so... He's bringing here the sort of since therefore he's making now a concluding statement based upon what he has written already in chapter three, and I'll say in particular beginning at three eighteen when he begins to uh, where we get really that that uh, uh, pivotal verse that's that uh, as uh, the the flood saved Noah from the evils of the world, so now baptism also saves you, um, and uh, and then. He, he builds into all of that how Christ has come in the flesh, how he suffered and died for sins, and that undergoing this great exchange of righteous, of the righteous one for the unrighteous, that is Christ for us, he then brings us to God. Um, and so here in verses 1 and 2 in particular, early, we also see uh, Peter writing uh, about the death and the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ and what some of the implications are for us then. So we 
because we have been baptized into Christ, that is into his death and into his resurrection, we are to think of ourselves in that same way. Um, you know, not just identity in the sense of uh, um, what we would say is objective, that which is given to us, but also then in how we live, right? So that as we are now in Christ, you know, and, and as Paul would write, we have died to sin. And so now we will be, have a resurrection like his. That resurrection is not just something that's in the future. It does affect how we live now because we are to live new lives. Um, you know, if I look at the, the way many of the outlines and the way people approach this, they might think of it extensively as just being virtuous living. But here in context, Peter makes this an encouragement for us to live in a faith-based way that is uh, living upon uh, the reality of, that we have undergone in baptism. That is that we have been made new. We have been given a new life. And so that new life is to be lived in a particular way. So he's saying then, know who you are. Know what it means to be a Christian. You have been united to Christ in his death. That means you have died uh, to sin, yes, but to that old way of living as well. And so now live as one who is united to him, that is, live to God. Um, and so this has both immediate and eternal consequences, or we might say promises. In Romans chapter 6, you know, it says, By no means how can we who died to sin still live in it? In Galatians, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. Colossians, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Those, of course, are Paul's letters. Peter here says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, that sounds like a passage that could be easily misinterpreted. Certainly, he's not saying that if you're suffering, it's because you're sinless or you know, help us understand that connection a little more. You know, Christ suffered in the flesh, but now whoever suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. Certainly that's not saying that our suffering makes us sinless. Well, I think it has kind of a twofold affirmation that he's making here. He, he is affirming first and foremost the suffering of Christ in the flesh, and, and by doing so, he, he is acclaiming the two natures of Christ, that, that he did suffer and he did die. And so in himself, he has um, uh, received the punishment of God's wrath for sin. Um, and, but at the same time, um, being God himself, he then dies for us. And so we have suffered in him, that is, he has suffered our transgressions or the, the, the uh, punishment for our transgressions. Um, and so now that as we are in him, we share in those sufferings. But he, because he has come in the flesh, he shares also in our sufferings, those, those things that we have now. So we suffer with Christ in his death by baptism, and thereby we have ceased to sin, right? So his death becomes our death. But likewise, it is through trial, as we do suffer in the flesh, that, that we are also then to cease from sin. Um, and, and it becomes, it's a, he's going to flesh it out a little bit more, but it, but it is uh, a, 
a description of the trial in which we undergo in this life. Um, and it is, it is not about us um, ceasing to sin because we have uh, been punished, but because Christ has taken that sin to himself that we are now to cease sinning. I, I, I hope that makes sense. No, I think so, right? I mean, the the person who's suffering, a believer in this case, that when a believer suffers for Christ, they've overcome the power of sin, but really it's that believers join Christ in his suffering, and so therefore through the suffering of Christ, then they end up prevailing over the power of sin. At least that's how I've kind of seen it. And so... Two is very looking forward to how, I guess, it's supposed to be. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So so Christ endured suffering because it was the will of his Father, and of course he shared in that will. And then we put up with suffering in this life. We connect that suffering to the suffering that Jesus endured that forgives us our sins. And so that gives us the the impetus to then strive to live according to God's will and not for our own human passions. Of course, we fail in doing that, but it doesn't mean that that's not what we're striving for, what the Holy Spirit wants for us. Right. So in that sense, it's an encouragement to us. Um, But I I do want to kind of root it back to the idea of baptism significantly, too. So um, as we are baptized into Christ— then there is this reality that we no longer sin. We are no longer sinners because Christ has taken our sin upon himself. And so as we remain in that identity, that is, if we stay steadfast as Christians um, and not turning away, because remember now this is written in the context of, of coming persecution, right? So if we remain steadfast in the faith, that is, uh, boldly uh, holding the banner of Christ as Savior, not um, uh, shying away from his name, but bearing it boldly, um, then our, uh, we might suffer in the flesh, but our sin is not the reason for it. It is, it is because of the name of Christ. Well, of course, that is always pressing up against the old nature, and it's pressing up against the world who wants to live in debauchery. Verse 3 is a reminder that the more things change, sometimes the more people stay the same. Just to reemphasize it, it says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And here's the examples. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, that describes the people of that time in as much as it describes the people of this time. And another thing we can connect with is the very following verse. It says, with respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they're going to have to give an account. So I, I really see, you know, despite the how long ago this was written, wow, it still applies to us today, speaking to us, it seems. It, it does. You know, so in other words, there's nothing new under the sun. As, as sin has entered in the world, sin has manifested itself in the same ways throughout time. Um, and so I probably wouldn't focus too extensively on any particular sin if we just lump it together. You know, perhaps 
um, as as you uh, in the general, as he's writing here to to the churches, as you once were not Christians and acted in these things, you know, that's one thing. That's the past. But you have been changed. And and so the time that has passed, that suffices for that. Um, but now it is time to, to be different, right? Um, and I kind of liken it to, to, to St. Paul again here that, you know, when he was a child, he acted like a child, right? So he acted in ignorance in that respect. And, and Peter's saying kind of the same thing here. You know, you acted perhaps in ignorance, but the time for ignorance is over because you have been enlightened. You have been given and shown a new way, a better way to live. Um, and, and so as the righteousness of God has been revealed, ignorance is no longer a defense, right? So as we have been born new, as we've been given a new life, as we have been set on upon this path of righteousness, uh, we should pay heed then and live according to that righteousness that is ours. So seek better things for our lives, uh, better things than those that lead to destruction. Um, and this is all part of the suffering of which he talks about, you know, because um, we're all tempted. Um, and, and part of that suffering then is the enduring of trial, the enduring through temptation and the struggle that is the Christian life. Um, a so, lot of these vices that he mentions, um, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, those, those are some of the things that they did in their private time, just sort of part of the culture. But there was a lot involved with the uh, pagan way of worship that involved these kinds of things. So is there an aspect of this that is also reminding us that as the world worships, we should obviously not do that and follow after Christ, even though, and there's that emphasis here, that they are going to be surprised that we don't just join them. And then they will malign us for not joining them. I, I see that today as some of the things that we would consider vices, the world considers virtues and celebrates and, in fact, maligns us for not just giving in. Um, obviously, uh, concrete examples include a lot of the LGBTQ stuff and the, and the dismissal of life and the destruction of the family. There's so many things that the, that the world celebrates in almost a religious way. And when we don't join in, not only are they surprised, but they, they, they punish us or, or persecute us or at the very least ostracize us for it. So a lot of the same things going on there. The Christians are so different than the rest of the culture that Peter here is reminding them that that's going to produce suffering. Whenever there's conflict, suffering's going to be produced. Right. Yeah, so some of these practices, they, they're not just individual. I mean, they can be part of... Uh, the cultus or the, the the culture itself, the manner in which the the pagan world lived and um, served their deities, and uh, and so the sexual practices are certainly part of that. Um, even even the drunkenness and so forth, the drinking parties were part of uh, the religious practices of the time. And as you say, you know, we see this in our own culture today, um, where I would say it's not like a religion. It is religious belief. Um, people of different worldviews, they hold to things as being sacred. And, um, and it has nothing to do with God's word, 
It just it is something that has, they have derived from themselves and have attached to some other aspect of society. So we, as Christians, then live at odds with these different worldviews, whether they're simply hedonistic or whether they're nihilistic. Um, and, uh, and, and as we live in this world, then, we are, are going to, we must stand out. And then one of the things that Peter is, I guess, often doing is invoking the reality of God's future judgment, right? So back in chapter 1, he says, you know, uh, the, the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. In chapter 2, keep your conduct honorable um, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, 23 uh, has the same idea that there's a God who judges justly. So here we have that same thought. You know, he's bringing up God, but the reality that there is a future judgment coming. These people will, I guess, they'll be, have, the vindication will be had, but it, of course, be vengeance will be done by God. I guess the question is, our attitude as a Christian doesn't want to see people judged. So I can't imagine this is giving, like, like hope to the believer. I mean, because believers don't want to see these people judged. I see this more as him saying um, there is the reality of judgment, and so it's best that you not take judgment into your own hands, right? So so when when you're reviled, remember that vengeance is the Lord's, so to speak, to take a, a, a sentence from other part of Scripture, right? So, so God will repay. Is that how you read that, or do you see it more as—I mean, I don't know. I just—I can't imagine it's a comfort to a Christian that people are going to be judged. Well, I, I think it's important that we understand we're all judged. Um, those who have faith in Christ then are judged according to his righteousness because we are united to him. Those that refuse to believe, those that reject Jesus as Savior, they're essentially saying, no, I want to stand on my own. I want to be judged according to my own virtues. And, uh, and we all know how that's going to be turning out because none is righteous, not one you know, save Christ himself. Um, and so as they refuse the current judgment, that is the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ, of one becoming righteous by faith under the cross of Christ, they're, they're going to receive then that later judgment of condemnation on account of sin. Um, it's, it is simply the result of refusing God's justification. I think that's a fantastic way of putting it. People who reject Christ are simply wanting to stand on their own merits, which, of course, we know can never uh, merit or earn eternal life. But, wow, that's a great way to put it. I I've never really thought of it specifically like that. I think that's something I'll definitely use in the future. Uh, but verse 6, though, I, you know, as we head up toward uh, up against our break, I have to say that this one is, I, I guess, really open to some misinterpretation. I've heard a variety of interpretations over the years. Just to remind people of the verse, it says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, you know, I think this refers to spiritually dead, non-believers, um, but the word here is necros, physically dead. So this is why the gospel was preached to the necros? What, is this, what does this mean? Yeah. So, I mean, certainly that you kind of mentioned two different ways of understanding it. 
Um, one would be um, preaching to those who are spiritually dead, and then we would understand it very easily to mean all mankind. Um, and then there are those that might understand it that he, he uh, preached even to those who are dead, um, that is, who have died in the flesh. Um, and I think the biggest part of the challenge with this is its proximity back to chapter 3, um, it particularly in verse 19, where it says that Christ uh, preached to the spirits who were in prison. And we certainly understand that to be his victory proclamation to those in hell, uh, those who had refused previously to believe. And um, and so here it is a challenge as we read it. And, and I... And I went to Luther. I looked him up a little bit here. And and he says it's the most obscure passage in the New Testament. Oh, wow. And uh, which I think is fantastic because he, he didn't really even want to try to understand it. So he just punts. Um, he's like, he, he's a good Lutheran. He says, oh, we don't know. It's paradox. <laughs> yeah. So I think if we if we just jump from there, it's important for us to understand there are portions of Scripture that are very difficult for us to understand. And, uh, and so we're advised not to build too heavily on those things and, and maybe find something else in Scripture that supports it. So we know that Jesus does not go and preach to those who are dead so that they might repent. In other words, there's no second chances. A man comes, dies once and comes unto judgment, right? So I do read it, and and I think Lenski, uh, one of our Lutheran commentators from a uh, hundred years ago or so, um, does a good job with this as he evaluates and looks at the language here, because we we do always look at the grammar, and and he understands it clearly that yes, it is talking about those who are dead in the flesh, but they had been preached to previously. Um, and, uh, and they would have been given the chance, then, is the idea, is they've been given the same gospel that though they might be judged in the flesh the way people are, all people are judged in the flesh. We suffer. But that they also would have that same opportunity uh, to, to live in the Spirit. And, uh, and so I don't think it's um, confusing other than the way it's written, the language makes it difficult, the, the, the way that the sentence is structured and the words that he uses. Uh, just, um, just for my own sake and clarity, so you're, is Linsky saying that Christ went back and preached to people who had previously died so that they could have a second chance at the gospel? Is that what, is that what he's no, saying? No, no, he's specifically saying that's not the case. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Um, that those who have died have had the gospel preached to them. So the idea is that as the gospel has gone into all the world, the whole world then hears the gospel. And, and that's part of this chapter here as we talk about the living as Christians. Our, our own lives are proclamation, right? Um, I think it's Paul who even says that, that the way that we live condemns those uh, who live contrary. Right? They reject us because, um, and they want nothing to do with us because our virtuous living constantly condemns them and they just refuse to believe. And so Lenski approaches it in that same way, that, that even those who are dead have had the gospel preached to them so that while they were alive, 
they had the opportunity to believe and to live uh, in the spirit. But he's not saying that, that they were preached to after their death. That's not what this means. Because I've heard it misinterpreted that way, and yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, and you know, and it, it connects a little bit, I guess, or at least it brings up, evokes, I should say, you know, Christ's descent into hell, which is another pretty hard to understand, well, maybe not hard to understand, but I would say disputed <laughs> uh, part of our belief. That is, different Christians kind of take that in different ways, and um, sometimes, you know, for some of these things, I just don't I don't think we're really going to know until the, the Lord comes back, and then, of course, we won't care. But for right now, though, we have to take a break, but we'll be back. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Sandino and I will keep on going through First Peter chapter 4. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me this morning is the Reverend Timothy Sandino, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Dear Saints, thanks so much for taking the time to be in God's Word with us this morning or whenever you're listening. Remember, if you have any questions or comments about today's show or maybe you want to reach out to my guest, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com or find me on Facebook. All right, Pastor, before the break, you know, we had just gotten through the very difficult passage of, you know, the gospel being preached even to those who are dead, which I think is a little humorous only in the sense that at the beginning I talked about how, oh, yeah, these epistles are so much more straightforward, and I still believe that to be true. But this is definitely one of those exceptions where, while I do believe because it's a letter, it's being written as straightforward. That is, he's not being esoteric or symbolic. I think he's just trying to be clear. But yet there's so many things that are, I guess, a little difficult for us to apprehend. Why do you think that is? Why a letter which is supposed to deliver you know, a message, comfort, information, teaching, why do we find some of these so hard to understand that we feel like, there's even division amongst Christians about how to interpret them. <laughs> well, that's a good question, right? Why, why, do it, any, why does anybody disagree on anything? We all live in the same world. We're all humans, and, and we should see things the same way. Um, but our own uh, histories, right, our own experiences, our own minds, our own desires do influence us, and that's why the study of Scripture is a necessary thing. We have to spend time diving in, um, it's important for us to understand perhaps how the church has always understood s- certain things um, so that we don't go awry just because I have this wild idea or something like that. So, I mean, you know, I, I grew up in a church body or various church bodies, to be honest, that didn't really 
even if like denominationally they had confessions, the local churches down south where I was just, you know, confessions, creeds, that wasn't a thing that was really important to people. And I, I think this is why confessions are so important. Now, perhaps in our confessions, we don't have an explicit explanation of verse six of first Peter four, but at the same time, I think confessions are an admission that we bring to the table whenever we read anything, a text, even the Bible, we bring our own preconceived notions and misconceptions and confessions keep us keep us honest. You know, they're they're used to measure our preaching and teaching. Um, but that's why it's so important because I, I've heard people say, and I know they're they're being earnest about it, but they'll say, well, as long as a church teaches the Bible, that's all that matters. But as we've seen, the reality of it is while we would hope that everybody would just <laughs> interpret and understand the Bible the same, a confession sort of puts down a flag. It says, this is the way we believe is the right way to interpret it. People may still disagree, but at least they know where we stand. Well, it, certainly. Um, and, and having what I'll say is a creed, a statement of what it is that one believes is scriptural. Just a few weeks ago, uh, our Lord asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? It, what we confess about Jesus Christ and about his work for us is, is very important, uh, is why we have doctrine. You know, the, the doctrine that we have are the things that are clear in Scripture so that we do believe rightly. Well, it's like the person who says, well, I don't need theology or doctrine, I just need Jesus. And then you're like, well, okay, who is Jesus? And they can't even open one syllable of that argument without engaging in theology. So, I mean, I, I think that there's this understanding that I'm going to be pure and just read the Bible for what it is, but it's not that the Bible is unclear. It's just that's not how life works. I mean, people will read the same, people will read the same VCR manual and and come up with different ways of interpreting it. So certainly something as as dynamic and as personal as the Bible. Well, let's keep on going though. Verse seven through verse eleven is on the table now. Um, Peter begins this, and I preached on this during COVID actually. Uh, verse seven. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So that ends this section. The end of all things is at hand. Very ominous sounding. Maybe a little less ominous when you realize this was written almost 2,000 years ago. So how do we take us through this, brother? How, how do we understand and then apply this today? Yeah. So Peter wasn't uh, prognosticating that, hey, the end is coming today or coming tomorrow, but he is saying that it could. In other words, it's, it's just as we believe as well. We need to always be ready for the return of our Lord. We're not waiting for some event to happen in history or anything else, that all that uh, the scripture has foretold has been uh, met in that respect as far as prophecy, and we simply await the return of our Lord. And um, and so he's giving the churches here 
this, this same great anticipation. Be ready for our Lord's return at all times. Um, don't think that, you know, I've got a week that I can indulge myself in whatever the sin may be, and then I can repent and I'll have time to do all of this before the Lord returns. Um, he's saying, no, the end is at hand. And, and for us, we should also understand, and especially the older we get, that we realize our uh, mortality is real, that uh, just because Christ maybe isn't coming for the full resurrection of the dead and the day of judgment, my judgment might come today. Um, you know, I've had a number of friends over the last several months who have died in their 50s. And, and so none of us are uh, immune or are going to escape. Uh, that temporal death, unless Jesus comes first. So either way, the end is at hand. Do you feel, and maybe this is an obvious statement, but do you feel that the church is not as, doesn't have the same sense of urgency as the early Christians did? And if we don't have the same sense of urgency, does that hurt our message, right? Because we we do a lot of planning in the church, and we have to, right, for good order. It's just, it's the right thing to do. I'm not saying planning is bad. But I do feel like churches plan without considering the fact that they should also be fully expecting that those plans will never come to fruition, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I, I feel like we've lost focus on the fact that Christ is returning soon. The, this, this idea, this concept of the end of all things is at hand. Have, have we lost that sense of urgency? <laughs> well, so you ask a very good question, and I guess if I answer in the affirmative that is in agreeing with you there, that I must condemn myself as well. Of course, um, and <laughs> me too. You know, it's we can get wrapped up in the everyday things. I get so busy doing this or doing that, and and then all of the planning because I have you know this Bible study to prepare for as well as Sunday sermon and everything else that I'm always planning. But that's that's. Not to mean that we shouldn't anticipate Christ coming again. I, you know, if I quote Luther, he said, if I knew Christ was coming tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today, right? Um, so we live as if we have to, to deal with tomorrow, but we also live, um, and as Christians then, in total repentance, we live at the foot of the cross, knowing that Jesus could come at any moment. Um, so you Hence got me the... thinking, as, as you were saying all of that, okay, at the end of the year, the church has a surplus. What do we do with the surplus money? You know, uh, if Christ is coming tomorrow, what good does it do to save it, right? Why not use it in the ministry in that respect? And so there's a lot of different ways that this question can really apply to our life as a church body. And, and in particularly, how do we evangelize? Is, is there really uh, a strong impetus to go out and bring the gospel to others? It can definitely be taken, you can fall off the ditch in the wrong way too, because uh, the end of all things is at hand, therefore don't worry about anything, sit around, do nothing, don't help your neighbor, don't plan Bible studies, just wait around for Jesus, obviously isn't the message. The message is, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So part of that self-control and sober-mindedness for the individual Christian, of course, is about being in the Word, living your life, taking care of your family, serving your neighbor. For the corporate Christian, like a, a congregation, it does involve things like planning for the future and, and that sort of thing. So you're right, there's this uh, tension that we have to live in of both living 
every day, responsibly serving our neighbor, planning for the future, but also realizing that our ultimate future is with God and everything's in his hands. Uh, And we run into these kind of paradoxes all the time, right? So we do the good work, but we don't really get credit for it because God's enabled us to do the good work. Um, We baptize our children, yet God does all the work in it. There's all kinds of paradoxes that we live in. Um, And one of those is this, right? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, for the sake of your prayers, live as a good Christian, essentially. Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. And these virtues now that he's talking about, as opposed to vices, that the Christian should engage in, the reason why this for me, and I'm sure it was for you and many others, was so potent when COVID was at its highest, um, frenzy, I should say, is that people did not keep loving one another. <laughs> the people did not show hospitality to one another. People did not serve one another or be good stewards of God's grace. When when we had a little bit of panic amongst the people, all of those Christian virtues seemed to disappear for some folks, and, um, and I think it was a struggle. So really, it's about if Christ is returning— then get to living as a Christian. At least that's how I see it. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, he's, I don't know if I want to go into the COVID thing so much, but uh, but there, okay. there are certainly okay. ways in which um, we do not live in a self-controlled manner or in a sober-minded way. And uh, and in this, I think he's, he, as he's referring to the mind in this respect and, and to the control of oneself uh, for the sake of our prayers, he, he's telling us to have a good piety in our life, you know, that, that we are to be attentive to our spiritual worship, the, the manner in which we offer our prayers and our praise, our sacrifices to God, both corporately and individually, um, and that, that we should keep in mind our brother when we do this, these things. Um, for as we, as we approach then here, loving one another earnestly, you know, I mean, hospitality is an interesting thing. Um, you know, churches talk about hospitality all the time, and it is a challenge for us, uh, especially so if I u- do use a contemporary thing, it it's, has to do with the illegal aliens in our country. Uh, we have this tension now between the church and the state, um, and as citizens, both in both kingdoms, you know, we might think one thing in the left-hand kingdom, but we have to act appropriately in the right-hand kingdom, um, not grumbling in the right-hand kingdom over the situation or the circumstances, but but showing hospitality, and it doesn't mean just you know greeting somebody at the door when they come to church, you know. Um, I got to thinking about this in particular. Um, there's this phrase that I hear all the time, welcome to our church, right? And in a sense, it is our church, the local congregation's church the congr- that, that meets on Sunday mornings. But I, I'm always trying to be conscious of language when I'm speaking to the unbeliever. And, uh, and I want them to know that it is their church too, that if they... Uh, come in the door seeking Christ, that that is not just, hey, you're a visitor, you're a part of the body, right, as one who believes. So in that respect, it's more or less welcome home. And that's what true hospitality is. It's the embrace of the father of his prodigal son. 
it's it's the the uh, inviting to the dinner table, um, the guests that are in the uh, the byways and and the alleyways outside. Uh, hospitality is unconditional in that respect, and that's what real love for the the neighbor is. It's a love that does not hold grudges. It's a it's a love that does not remember sin, and uh, and so here I think Peter is significantly talking about as love covers sin. You know, love is the greatest, as Paul would write, but it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. He writes, Paul does. Um, and, and so love covers sins because love forgives and, uh, and, and it forgives freely and fully and totally as God loves and forgives in his son, Jesus Christ. I like that welcome home as opposed to welcome to our church. Um, you know, it, it, it does. It's so important, whether it is the visitor at church or whether it is the illegal immigrant, whether it is the um, <laughs> dealing with the things like COVID. And the reason I brought it up is not to rehash old things, but I, I it's already in the news again. Uh, or whether it's just how you interact with your neighbor, it really does show you that that Christ coming back matters. The end of all things being at hand, it matters, not because of what's going to happen when the end comes, but what happens until then. Um, we are given gifts. We are to be good stewards of God's varied grace. Um, and why? How? To serve one another. Um, one phrase I often use, it's not exactly, it's not exactly paradigm shattering, but is that we serve God by serving others. I say that all the time because everybody wants to know how can they serve God? What can they do to make God happy? How can they, um, <laughs> to, to speak in the way of Joel Osteen, how can they make God smile today? Well, the answer is, Serve your neighbor, right? God doesn't really need anything from you, but your neighbor does. A very Lutheran idea, of course, but one that's kind of foreign in some interpretations of the faith. So um, we are to serve one another, and that's how we serve God. Um, that's that's how we're supposed to prepare for the end of time or the end being near. Um, I think that's interesting. It, it is. Um, and so here we didn't, read the verse again, but as we each have received a gift, we are to use it to serve one another. And and we, oftentimes when we think of stewardship, we automatically think of money. And and we can uh, academically or, or theoretically think of, yes, all that I possess is God's and I'm just his steward. But, um, and then the way I plan it then is, well, I give him the first 10% and then I get to do whatever I want with the rest. And, and that's not true stewardship. It all is to be stewarded in that respect and, and should serve God's uh, will. Uh, but it, it goes much beyond simply uh, maybe our money or our possessions and how we use them, but it's our very lives. We are to steward everything that we have, whether it be our intellect, whether it be our, uh, our ability to show grace to other people. Um, in whatever way and God has enriched us in this life, we are to steward that. That is, there is a purpose for uh, those things that we have that God has given to us. And as Peter writes here, it is that God may be glorified. Um, and, uh, and so our, if we're going to use examples, right, as Jesus has the example, he gives up everything um, 
and, and it's not just the death, but it's he he comes to earth um, humiliating himself, giving up all that is his so that he might win us for himself. And uh, and so all that God gives to us is to be stewarded for his purposes. That's a challenge for us in many ways, because, you know, God doesn't give us a blueprint of, of how all of that is to be done. Um, but we should be mindful of the things that we do, and we should recognize that um, others have importance in our lives for this purpose, that God might be glorified. And he is glorified when we love them. And I guess if we have a blueprint, it's our Ten Commandments, right? That is how we love our neighbor. Um, and then, you know, he closes out this section, Peter does, with a, a short uh, doxology. And so the, the entire Christian life is to be a, a life of doxology in thought and word and deed. That is that God is given glory in everything that we think and say and do. And he closes it out with, amen, yes, yes, this shall be so. In the next section, Peter expands a little bit on what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. We're going to read the rest of the chapter, verse 12 through verse 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us... But what will then be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And, quote, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? End quote. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then, of course, the next chapter begins, so, <laughs> which means we'll have yeah. to pick up with... Uh, how he continues the argument tomorrow, but we'll begin it today. Beloved, don't be surprised when you have trials and tests. That's how he begins. Yeah. We have many examples of this same kind of language in the scripture there, you know, that uh, you know, that uh, the dross is burned off, that is the silver is purified, and, and we, we undergo the smelting process, right, as, as gold and silver. Um, so as baptism and faith lead to a manner of suffering, as one refrains from sin and pursues virtue, and then we are maligned by those who love sin and ignore virtue, so too does such faith uh, living, such faithful living, it leads to real suffering and persecution in this life. In other words, we suffer specifically because we're good. It is a, the result of faith. And, and we should not be surprised when it does come. Um, in fact, it should be expected. It's not something that we seek, but when we truly live uh, as virtuous Christians, as those uh, loving God and loving neighbor, we stand out and, uh, and we are maligned, as he, Peter said earlier, and we will suffer. And, uh, and I think this in particular is, is the preparation that Peter is making as persecution is coming, um, you know, um, 
I think the letter was written after the Christians were blamed for the burning of Rome. Um, and so we have now the beginning of persecution in the church and, and the acceptance of persecution against the church. And so he's laying this here as, as not just something that we have to endure, but it's something that fires or, or uh, purifies our faith. That is, as we endure these things, our faith is strengthened. I think most Christians think of suffering as just what happens when living, striving to live in God's will butts up against the unbelieving world. Um, and, and I think that's true. But it also sounds like God allows the suffering or perhaps even causes the suffering so that it will benefit us. Is, is that kind of what we're getting here? I would say in both instances, we would talk about God's uh, permissive will where he allows things uh, to happen to us for, for his purposes. Sometimes we don't understand why. Um, but we, we also understand that uh, God will temporarily punish. Um, and in that sense, I, I prefer to use the word chastisement. Um, you know, God doesn't just inflict pain upon us just so that we can hurt. He does it so that he might uh, affect some corrective behavior. And, um, and so this is the, then the purifying of our faith as, as we learn how to depend upon him, as we learn to turn to the, his word and to prayer in our times of troubles, as we no longer rely upon our own intellect and our own abilities, but rather look to Christ and, and to depend and trust in God, um, then our faith itself is strengthened because he is the only one that can save us. We might find reprieve, you know, it's like we find that, that little trickle of, of a, a spring in the midst of uh, this purgatory, but that, that's going to dry up and he's trying to offer us the, the well that springs up to eternal life. Of course, this suffering is contingent upon the fact that you're suffering because of your faith. You could suffer in this life because you do dumb things, make bad decisions, commit crimes, right? So there's this idea that don't just go searching for suffering, and don't make it seem as though every time you're suffering, you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake, so to speak, but rather suffer as a Christian. Um, you know, suffering's going to come one way or the other. So suffer as a Christian. Uh, at least that's how I read it. Well, it is. So, I mean, I can't blame God if, if I suffer in jail because I stole a car or something like that. That's my own fault. Um, but suffering does come upon us sometimes um, because we are Christians. And there are times, perhaps, um, we just had a... a a hurricane come through Florida, you know, a week and a half ago. And, uh, you know, it wasn't there to uh, afflict anybody in particular, but people suffer because of it. And, uh, and here our instruction then would be to suffer through these things um, as those who still have faith. Um, and, and that then strengthens us as we depend upon Christ in, in whatever our situation um, and then it, it turns us away from self-reliance, which will not get us anywhere. It will not stand in the day of judgment. 
and it turns us to Christ, um, su his sufficiency and reliance upon him. I do like the language that Peter uses here because he says you are blessed um, when you're insulted for the name of Christ. Um, that is uh, what we might call as beatitude language. It's the same kind of language that we, that we find in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus speaks, blessed are you. And, um, and this is, he says, when you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. It's like hearing, hearing all of heaven cry out and acclaim that you are blessed, you are blessed, or blessed are you in these situations. And, uh, and that should be what the Christian strives for, is to be known as the one who is blessed, the one who is in Christ, and, and not the one that maybe finds an easy way through this situation, but cannot attain eternal life on his own. Well, believe it or not, we are close to the end of our time together. Time flies when you're learning so much. Uh, any last comments or, or insights that you want our, our listeners to take away from our conversation today? Um, well, just in the last section here, uh, Peter does quote scripture, um, some uh, paraphrase and some direct quote, like he, he would rely upon uh, the prophets, uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, talking about the time of judgment that begins with the household of God. And, um, and I think the Lutheran Study Bible does a good job also of bringing in Amos 3 and Romans 2 here to amplify this. But I would also speak that it, it might sound harsh to us that God would begin his judgment with the household of God. But, uh, you know, if, if we go... I can't remember the proverb off the top of my head, but, you know, like spare the rod and, and spoil the child. But we know that God, if he loves us, he will chastise us. And that doesn't necessarily mean afflict pain, but, but he redirects us. And so his judgment begins with us. But for the sake of Christ, we need to understand that that judgment is a judgment of righteousness. And then from outward, he'll go and judge the rest of the earth, right? And, uh, and it's a, as he quotes here um, from uh, Proverbs, I think Proverbs 11 here, if the righteous is scarcely saved, that will become uh, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner. You know, it is by <laughs> the hair on his chinny chin chin that one is saved, right? It's not, but I shouldn't say our hair on our chin, but it, it is a fine line between that one who is and that one who is not saved. That fine line being faith in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and if we uh, are so uh, scarcely, as he writes here, saved, that is by such a, a slim margin that we are saved, um, how much more difficult is it or how much worse is it for those who do not have faith, you know, because they will not be saved. They will not know the glorious uh, and blessedness of Christ and in heaven. Um, well, that's where we're going to have to leave it today. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Timothy Sandino, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gorham, Maine. Pastor, thanks for being on the show. Well, I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for having me. Tomorrow, we continue Peter's thought here in chapter 5 uh, as we reach the end of 1 Peter. 
In this last part of his first letter, Peter gives guidance both to church leaders and to the broader Christian community. He calls for humility among church leaders and emphasizes their role as shepherds who care for the flock entrusted to them. This chapter underscores the importance of resisting the devil and standing firm in the faith, knowing that others in the Christian family share similar trials. We're going to talk about that more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hands.